With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales. We have a great episode for you all today. I'm joined with my co-host board member of Y Whales, Jessica Billingsley. We've got an ex a fantastic episode of an example of a Web 2 company transitioning their entire business model to Web 3, focused on, on the re real estate industry. We're joined by president of Form Free, Eric Lappin, and founder and CEO, Brent Chandler. Eric, Brent, nice to meet you guys. Good to see you again, Siva. Nice to see you, Jessica. Yeah, nice it's great to, to be here. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So, Web three. I mean, how does how do how does a bunch of Web two guys transition an entire company, a successful company, especially in the residential real estate industry, into Web three? What what hooked you guys? Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's a question both Eric and I. Could, could spend hours on. Um, but I think it really comes down to, and by the way, I'm Brian, I'm the founder and CEO of FormFree and, and delighted to be here. I mean, uh, you know, our, our mission is really driven <clears throat> from what propelled us from two to three and even, even looking out further in a few years, five. But, um, you know, without exception, it's about empowerment of, of the consumer, of the human. Um, empowering consumers with their own information to act on their own behalf and share that information as they see fit and, and really open up the, the world to, to a different mentality of, of control. And rather than hoping for the best, they can drive uh, solutions with their own data. And their data is coveted. The data is coveted. The data is very, very personal. And ensuring that security and trust resides with the consumer Man, that's that's a that's one reason, Eric. Yeah, the the other thing uh, that comes to mind is you know when you're looking at Web two and and we all understand that Web two is where we've been really since 2006. So start saw the big increase when we had the social media platforms come into play about 10, 12 years ago. Um, the the entire time. I think you're seeing most of this being how do you utilize data and what actual insights go on there and what intelligence goes on that data. And that's where we learn about, I would say, in Web 2. The other thing that we're seeing now as well is, you know, Brent and I were having a discussion. This was probably over a year ago. And we're talking about, you know, with everything out there in the world where we're seeing change, I mean, you just feel it out there. There's, there's like, Brent will, Brent will go into this and talk about it in further detail, but, you know, there's a vibrational change. So we read about a lot of these things and, and what's going on as it relates to uh, financial technology, perceptions, what's important to people. Um, the use and control of someone's data is at the paramount of, of a lot of people's questions and or fears. And this is done by research, you know, people saying, I want to be able to do business how I want to do business, and I want to be able to trust who I'm doing business with. So, 
it just seems like a natural progression with everything that Form Free's done and, and you know, working through um, the proof points of everything that Form Free is and what Passport Token is and moving into self-sovereign financial identity. It just seemed like the, the next logical step. So we're excited to be, you know, where we are. I think we'll get, we definitely want to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, the steps of, of how you decided to do this and what you're doing. But I'd love to just, before we get there, this is an easy sell to consumers, right? It's an easy sell to your younger folks, to many of us who are familiar with Web3. And I think most of your clients are really B2B and a little bit more entrenched and maybe this is not common lexicon for them. So I'd love to know how you go about that sale, that strategic partnership, and that uh, those B2B relationships and, and that education process. Yeah. Um, you know, as Eric said, the, you know, the genesis of Form Free was, was really uh, at a pivotal time in, in our country. Uh, you know, we were going through a financial crisis. Uh, it, was, it was actually a pivotal time in, in a global financial crisis uh, where we saw a, an industry in 2008, I'm referring back to, um, how an industry was literally turned on its head uh, because of a single root cause, which I could characterize as, and the, the Federal Crisis Inquiry Commission actually did a postmortem in 2012, characterizing it as the willful disregard of lenders to assess a borrower's ability to repay a loan was the root cause. Now, <clears throat> that gets tranched in derivatives and, and collateralization, hundreds if not thousands of layers deep. And, and, but at that root level, you know, in, in the B2B environment where there was a, an efficacy requirement for lenders to assess the, the risk in these particular loans, uh, particularly mortgage loans, but this, this spans the gamut of all loans. The, the B2B nature is such that um, if I want a loan, I reach out to a lender and provide a series of documents and, and information that will assess some level of risk that that lender will be able to proceed with potentially giving me a loan. The threshold to meet that are the guidelines set forth by the government agencies. Um, this is, you know, governed by the Federal Housing Finance Authority, FANI, FREDI, FHA, VA, etc. Uh, the regulators, uh, in addition to that, set the standards of what is acceptable. Uh, lenders can, of course, skew outside of those, those guidelines um, and warehouse these loans on their own uh, merits and risk. But for the most part, the guidelines set forth by the, the GSEs, um, Fannie and Freddie, are what dictate or predicate the documentation that a, a borrower will submit. And this is, again, for the mortgage loan. Um, so in that sense, that's B2B, you know, I go to a lender, that lender then, um, 
offers me a way, various ways to provide this information. Well, in 2008, it was all paper. It was all paper. And, and, and my aha moment really came at that moment where I was one of those borrowers. In 2007, I was entering a, a purchase agreement for a house and I really needed the loan. Um, my background was in understanding the, the, uh, the quality of data for trading, for hedge funds, for institutional portfolio managements, for large um, size exchanges that would have massive throughputs of known data. You couldn't make a mistake. So one of the things that I learned was, was that source data was critical. Truth data, not trusting. And one of the factors in lending was trust. Hmm, interesting. So my aha moment came when I effectively, you know, realized that they just didn't know who I was. They were assembling all these documents, but they couldn't really assess who Brent Chandler was or what my, my propensity or willingness to pay was. You couldn't see it in a bank statement. You couldn't just see it at a glean of a, a tax return. Um, you could make some judgment calls based on that information and predicated on historical um, uh, loans and lending, you could make some good assumptions, but you really couldn't understand my risk. Um, but for me as a borrower, I was in desperate need of a loan. I had already purchased the house. I needed a loan. And so all of these factors kind of melded together to realize that uh, I was the, the common denominator that needed to be understood. And if I could quantify that empirically and mathematically and share that in a digital format instantly, because I already knew what I was worth and I knew where the data resided, I could gain access to it. I could deliver that in a single payload. And they could know, oh, Brent's viable. Let's give him a loan. Well, no, it didn't work like that. <laughs> it was 60 days later, a loan, ro a loan lock rate uh, blew up and I had to pay more for it, et cetera. But the B2B nature was really how the industry embraced what we were, what I was suggesting could be a viable alternative to the way we do it. So in essence, I had to go to the, the banks and the lenders, et cetera, uh, to more, more or less accept this new methodology. And that took over five years to get some level of very uh, limited acceptance. It morphed into guarantees in 2016, but the B2B nature of the business was by, by necessity. It was just how the business was done. I don't think it was uh, necessarily later years. I knew it wasn't the preferred methodology. I knew the consumers would be more apt to um, ad adopt these types of technologies. Um, as we could see, the world kind of moving forward with technology at a faster pace than, say, the antiquity of, of the mortgage underwriting process. Um, so it was a jumping off point about six years ago where we realized, yeah, the consumer was, the, was, was really the target audience. And to your point, um, Jessica, the, the consumers are truly the, uh, the interested party. The lenders are the byproduct. The lenders are essentially providing a, 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 a need that the borrower has. But for the most part, the borrower is interested in providing this information in an, in an easy and sustainable way. So 
Well, we do believe that it was necessary to go through the B2B channels to prove the efficacy of the data, the quality of the data, the security of the data. Uh, to date, you know, we've worked with over 3,500 lenders. Um, we've processed over $4 trillion in, in loans that have been underwritten. We've seen those uh, uh, loans age over a period of, you know, close to a decade. And we've seen the results. The results are lower deficiency, lower delinquencies, higher quality. Um, so it does make sense that we had to traverse those B2B channels um, and try to, in essence, you know, move uh, the B2B space to adoption. The fact that it didn't adopt um, as quickly or as, um, as, as widely as one would have hoped really propelled us to go B2C. And we do believe that now is the, the apropos time. It's the, the ripe time. You have, you have several forces, and I'll stop with this, but you have several forces moving in this direction. You have, um, you know, transformation occurs either by mandate. You know, you can, you can see a government, a government act that forces people to do things. Uh, or you can, you can see transformation happen through market efficiency, which is a much more natural uh, process. Market efficiency can be seen with the likes of an Uber or payment solutions. Uh, Airbnb is a, a is a neat transformation that just took hold and went viral. Um, we have both of those uh, those environments happening simultaneously right now. You have a government mandate which is saying expand your credit box, reach the not served, empower people with their own data. Uh, the CFPB is very loud about. Um, giving control back to the consumer. I, I mean, I agree with the you there. Efficiency. I agree with you there, Brent, but, mm -hmm. you know, just because it's a great idea doesn't make it easy to monetize. So we, I think, I think our um, listeners would be very interested in hearing that, that transition and those monetization steps, how, what has sure. been successful, what has been not successful. Yeah, and I, I mean, just so I don't dominate the conversation, um, Eric is as well versed on this as I am. So, Eric, you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, it, the true definition of Web three, which is the consumer possessing and controlling the use and sharing of their data, but also receiving the rewards. So, just take what we've seen in the in the past decade or, or less of gamification and rewards based economy with various open banking apps that we've seen out there and other solutions. Uh, when consumers are utilizing Passport, and, and at the very core, this is virtual credit. So I, as the consumer, am providing my direct source data. So it's not hearsay, it's direct from my banking account. And the key here is the intelligence that we at FormFree have from an ethical, non-biased approach to determine a consumer's ability to pay looking at cash flow, looking at a mathematically deterministic approach of, you know, what discretionary income do we have? Is this, is this a consumer that can afford what kind of a loan for an automobile or a small business loan or uh, a home equity or, or a home loan? And, you know, from, from that standpoint, the consumer is sharing that data and then also revoking the use of that whenever they want. So from a monetization standpoint, you know, we 
we share in that with the consumer when the consumer is providing their data they monetize their data and receive a portion of that um, in return. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting, actually. So when Brett, back to your talking track, you know, ownership of data, Web3, I think, you know, a lot of us realize, you know, the transition from Web2 to Web3 is the true ownership of the data where we are no longer the product, but now we can control the permissions of who accesses our data, right? And especially in the context of SSFI, and again, your your example of let's take the origination of a mortgage, right? On average today, the pain point is, I believe the, it's a 42-day average when someone originates a loan. Let's talk through maybe uh, a wee easy example of what all of our listeners know here when they've originated a loan and tried to go and get their house where Form Free plugs in and how Form Free is actually controlling and how a consumer may control that data. So I think the first part is submission and what we have concepts of VOI or VOA or VOC or VOE. So like verification of credit, verification of employment, verification of assets. Where does Form Free's capability empower the consumer and what, plat- what capabilities of your platform um, allows a consumer to really control that data and how it's being permissed to a lender, to a GSE, and how can they monetize that data to make sure that they're incentivized to continuously verify that data? Yeah, so it's really a, a before and after conversation. Um, if we look back over time, uh, it was given, it was provided by a, a lender to the consumer to provide their information. So you're giving your coveted information to this lender and hoping that you get a loan. And it's just part of the underwriting process. So as we go through you know, the thousands of documents that have to be collected in order to underwrite a loan, um, you're talking about some very critical documents, understanding your ability to pay, um, which, is, which is essentially what, what we do. Um, and so that being couched in the lender's underwriting environment is is how it was done. The future is where I basically gain access to an app which essentially assesses my ability to pay prior to entering the loan. So effectively empowering that consumer with their own information and then illustrating to them their, their borrowing power, their ability to pay, their residual income, discretionary income. Th- these are the same underwriting criteria and the same documents that are accepted by those lenders downstream. So imagine you walk into a passport, um, you, you essentially are looking for a loan. It's a loan app. Um, how much do you want? You, you size it up, you ask, you, you permission it with your information. And then we, illust- we, 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 we analyze that information and intelligibly tell you how much you can actually afford. And then capture that in a token, which we call the qualified borrower token, remove all bias, and then provide that token to the lending industry. The lending industry, which comp- well, comprises of, of thousands of lenders, would then have access to this token, this qualified borrower token, which they could effectively bid on and or suggest that they would say, hey, these based on these attributes, this borrowing power, this Ricky index, this credit score, this asset income and employment verification, these criteria are loans that I would underwrite. And no longer do we have the bias of 
of the uh, of the gender, of the race, um, of the socioeconomic background. So it's really true fundamentals of underwriting a loan. Can they afford the loan? Yes. So that token then becomes the instrument of monetization. The monetization is essentially lenders are hungry right now to be able to underwrite loans. Well, you have this whole plethora of, of the not served, underserved, no FICO, low FICO, all these conditions that prevent people from actually entering a loan um, that are sitting on the sidelines that just haven't entered the space. You open up that environment to literally over 45 million people, 100 million renters, who can now potentially look at their own information, make decisions based on their borrowing power, knowing that they can actually afford this loan with, uh, with, with their criteria, those lenders are now seeing a salient you know, risk metric in a QB, and that constitutes an exchange of monetization. What the borrower gets for that exchange is essentially, instead of just taking a lender that just comes out of nowhere uh, and, and begin working with them and hoping they get the best offer, um, you have a market uh, environment where where lenders will, you know, outbid one another and provide the best offer back to the borrower. So there's a monetization oh, that's, there. That's, that's interesting. So, I mean, I think what you're positioning and what your platform, at least if I'm understanding it correctly, and let me reframe this in terms of like a layman's understanding. So are you saying that, you know, within the form-free platform, I now have an ability, you know, on my phone to log into an app and I only have to validate this once because, or, or maybe revalidate as it's, as it changes. But now I have one central location that I can upload my, in, my credit information, my salary information, my asset information, all of that, that basically goes into, you know, qualifying me as a borrower for a loan. And then right now from a, a, a retail perspective, it's a complete crapshoot. It's basically a game of chance. Am I approved for this loan? What qualifiers are approved for this loan? There's a whole FICO score that I have no understanding of with that algorithm uh, that's a, a component of my qualification. And then let's yeah, say you know I right. submit that information. Are you saying now you take that information and package that as a token, as a data payload, that that token now grants access to a lender to then underwrite a risk profile against? That's correct. And when we were talking earlier, Siva, and in past conversations, and I'm going to tie this into real estate and and and, and some other areas as well. But but this is, tokenization is the representation of value. So the representation of value is the PII or the personal, personal uh, identifiable information. And the consumer is, is providing us through the, the data directly from the source. And I think that's the key here because when you're looking at, at least from a mortgage lending standpoint, and you can also do this with small business and auto, which we also uh, working as well, you look at the cost of manufacturing a mortgage loan, for example, uh, has gone steadily up in the past decade. And in the last year, year and a half, it's gone from a little over $10,000 to manufacture the loan to now a little over 12000 With a passport token and, and the consumer sharing that token, they, as a lender now, receive an underwritable qualified borrower. So we're flipping the script on the whole model here as far as the Whoa, lender. That's, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. it, I mean, w what you're saying, so 
again, another pain point, you know, from a traditional consumer perspective right now, when I apply for a low, uh, a, pro- a mortgage product, when I apply for a bank, a uh, personal loan, when I apply for an auto loan, I have to continuously re-upload this information over and over and over and over again. Are you claiming with the passport token that I only have to upload this once? And now when I apply to any lender for any loan product, I don't have to resubmit this. I just have to validate it. And they validate against my token. I don't have to go and apply to 10 different websites for, for 10 different loans. They just have to connect to this token. Right. The applying now goes on the other side of it. The lenders are applying to work with you as the consumer. So my consumer experience is now enhanced. It's augmented. And I have this information that I'm sharing. The lender knows my information. I'm allowing them to review it. And let's see what kind of offer you can do based on my profile. So, you know, that's the part that we, we were talking about earlier, that it's, it's uh, you know, this is also deployable against, you um, you know, held away data or custodial accounts as well. I mean, so any financial institution, um, any lender, credit union, large bank, small bank, fintech lender, neo bank, any sort of banking institution that wants to have the custody data of their of their customers reviewed, um, we help uncover or look at another lens of what's the ability to pay based on my servicing portfolio of my customers today that normally I couldn't. Because we've been in a system of decades of having a score put on us of what's our, you know, what can we afford, what can we not afford based on a three-digit score with a with a with an algorithm in a black box. So what we're saying is and, and what we're saying there's been some great success with that, but as with anything, it's time to look at differences, it's time to look at things that are advanced with better data, better intelligence on top of that data. And then the transformation of controlling of that technology where the consumer controls that. And in this case, it's the passport token. And, um, you know, it's it's proven. And, you know, the thing about in the mortgage industry, as you guys know, um, very, very large sector of the GDP in the United States. And the height, we saw it over $4 trillion. We're seeing it a little over $2 trillion now, a little over $5 million loans that we saw um, last year. Um, you know, and... We still, there's a lot of business, there's a lot of people that can afford homes that initially did not have the opportunity because of the traditional credit system that we have today. So I'll let Brent talk a little bit further on this about where asset meets credit and talk about the um, the combining of those two. But most importantly, as we go into Web3, you know, 89% of all uh, consumers want to own their financial data and have control of it. And that is a staggering, powerful number. Um, obviously, a lot of those are in certain generations, and we see that. But you see a lot of generations that want to utilize wallets and utilize the aggregation of all their financial accounts into one view. And they want to be able to share that and have decisions made, and they want to do as much as they can through through one app. Before we jump to Brent, I just want to ask a very basic question: Why blockchain? Why Web three? I mean, why couldn't what what's why couldn't I do this in Web two, where I have users or consumers fill out a financial profile on a singular platform, and they have all that data on a singular platform, and then I just open up an API, and the GSEs and the lenders plug into that API? Well, what's why go on chain? Usually, that seems like another layer of complexity. Not another layer of complexity, it's just an additional opportunity to have that data transfer. The difference, though, and where we see it is with the Web3 play, 
um, the transparency, the digital ledger uh, technology that allows for the transfer and assignability of data and the, the ac efficacy and accuracy of that data can really only be done with the blockchain. And, and to go a little further on that, you're seeing success with lenders that at the top of all this, behind everything that we do, there, there are capital markets, there are secondary markets that provide the liquidity for all of these types of loans. But when you look at the other side of it, all this liquidity is funneling into the center of all this, and the center of all this is you and I as the human or the consumer that's involved in these deals. So if we're looking at the transfer of these data, uh, or the data as looking at the Web 2 approach versus Web 3, you could do either one, but when you're, when you're carving off dollars or basis points off the cost of due diligence and transfers of these assets, um, at the end of the day, you really want to see as a business, you know, we're all, we all take pride in the fact that we're involved in an ESG business. We all, all want to help the environment. We want to be social. We want to uh, play within the governments and the regulations. But you want to make sure that the business has a scalability and a business model around it so you can con continue to move these ESGs um, components forward. So when you're looking at blockchain compared to where the traditional was, the security, the privacy, the accuracy is uh, is of the utmost importance and better in Web three. So, are you guys so, are you guys making your revenue based off of you know charging the GSEs and lenders access to your passport pl uh, platform and the consumer information, or uh, are you charging the consumers a fee uh, on access to their form free profile? Like, where where is the the revenue generation for your company uh, uh, on this on this process? Do you want me to take it, or are you, Brent? Yeah, the, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll do it, <clears throat> and I'll just, I'll just. I know Jessica, you had a question as well. If you wanted to, ask it, it was the same um, exact question. How, what, what are your streams of revenue? How do you actually? I think we're just trying to follow. Are you making money on both sides with the with the B two B and the B two C, or just on one side? And you know, what is that? What is that revenue model? We're trying to yeah, understand. No, I think it's very straightforward, and it's it's a good question. Um, as you look at the B two B, there was an event earlier this year, um, which we we celebrated the divestiture of, of the account check B two B product, essentially. Um, and and what we what we recognized was that you know that the the B two B will still live on, and it's an important component you know to the industry. But, but as we look forward, uh, our true passion is really empowering the consumer in the Web3 environment. So empowering the consumer comes at no cost. This is a, a free app, um, and it's essentially get a loan app. Uh, it, and it does contain a lot of other attributes which are related to your self-sovereign financial identity. And this begins to, to, to span the globe. So as we think about bridging DeFi, CeFi, as we think about blockchain, we think about memorializing some of this information on chain, so that to Eric's point, you know, there's so many facets of, of, of lending and underwriting that require secondary and then investors on secondary um, to actually audit and, and, and look at this information for its sanctity. Um, on chain memorializes these transactions, makes it easily accessible. We become, you know, dApps in, in, in other environments. And, and in order to, to make that bridge, 
we needed to create a uh, cohesion you know, to those environments. That's one reason. The other reason is the efficiency as we look more into the Web5 environments of open networks. So I won't go into that today, but I think empowering the consumer to monetize their own data is, is certainly in our future. Um, how we monetize today. But how do you make money? I was just going to say. Um, so, so today we okay. Today we make money in two different ways. Um, the the pre, the the and and both models are are uh, you know uniquely um, captured with respect to our our offering. So the SaaS model is really creating an algorithm that can sit inside a bank. Um, that's the residual income knowledge index. So that's a that's a proprietary alternative credit model that's that's now being accepted for underwriting in, in loan cases where you have low FICO, no FICO, or reaching that demographic that's been, not been served. Okay, so we'll, we'll put that over here for a minute. Um, with respect to the... And that's B2B. Um, that's very much B2B, yes. Okay, so it's B2B and it's SaaS. And, you know, give us an idea of, you know, how you structure that B2B SaaS revenue. Okay, so, so if you think about... Um, if, if you think about this, this analytic, this, this algorithm, if you will, that assesses mm -hmm. the residual income knowledge, um, this is a, a model that a, a bank or a credit union with domiciled accounts could deploy uh, very easily in their current environments as a lens to widen their aperture on their existing accounts. So let's say I've got a million accounts and in those million accounts, we've determined that there are some, some borrowers that have been overlooked or that didn't meet the threshold of uh, criteria for you extending a loan. We identify those. We elevate those in a dashboard. Uh, think Bloomberg, if you will. But uh, essentially, that's a license fee. And that's a, a, a you know, monthly license fee that looks at all accounts. And then you can actually, as a bank or a credit union, leverage this tool to identify new loan opportunities. Additionally, the Ricky Index can actually look at existing loans that perhaps are underperforming. So in a, in a tighter, restrictive environment like we're seeing now where, where uh, you know, banks are, are, are closing the credit box, tightening, uh, and looking to um, identify underperforming and, and what loans. And what is that Ricky Index that you're mentioning? Mm -hmm. You, you've mentioned Ricky Index a couple of times. Our listeners might not be familiar with what sure. that is. You know, um, Ricky is something that we pioneered almost 11 years ago. Um, when Dodd Frank introduced, uh, when Dodd Frank introduced its um, its law, there were a lot of things in it. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the one of the calls to action was essentially residual income in lieu of DTI and gross as an alternative for underwriting standards. Um, and for those in the mortgage industry, we know that the veteran loans, uh, the VA loans, um, actually go through residual income calculations. Um, however, it takes a lot of effort. It's a lot of manual processing, and it could take a long time. Um, and what we decided to do and what we jumped on was the idea that we could automate that. Well, 11 years later, it has come to fruition that our intelligence, we apply some natural language processing and some artificial intelligence 
in the under, underlying data of that consumer and can calculate a residual income index. We call it a knowledge index. So is, 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 that, a, is that a competitor to FICO? Because isn't that essentially what FICO is doing? Um, I would say that this is where we, where we really see the attributes. And in, in component mathematics, we look at vectors that assess a person um, the more vectors you have, the broader understanding of that risk you can assess. And so we see FICO is one vector. We see other attributes like residual income, discretionary income, assets, um, various transaction activity that really compile together to make a more holistic view of risk to a consumer. So we now know Brent Chandler on a much deeper level. FICO is just it's essentially one vector. Um, so while we don't dismiss FICO, um, this is not us against them. This is really about the coming together of additional vectors that can truly assess a holistic view of risk. Now, in the event that FICO doesn't exist, we still have five other metrics or, or vectors, if you will, to assess that component analytics where that borrower can actually still qualify for a loan minus a FICO. Where FICO does exist, maybe a 720 is behaving like an 800, or maybe a 620 is behaving like a 720. So that's what the residual income knowledge index really gets into, is assessing a higher value of what this borrower's risk is, what their ability to pay is based on that residual income. It also peers into discretionary income, where we can begin to see, well, they spend a lot of time on these and sundry items where if we could counsel them to maybe you know, stop spending as much time at, at Starbucks or what have you, um, then that could sway your residual income higher to where you could afford a loan in a different capacity. So all of these things come into play instantaneously. The industry wasn't ready for it 11 years ago, but we, never, we said we stayed steadfast on that model. And literally last year, Gil, launched uh, the world's first residual income knowledge index for underwriting loans um, with low FICO or no FICO. And that was the initial entree of Ricky into the world. Um, oh, that's, that's big. I mean, there's an, a substantial portion underserved of the population that just don't have a FICO score or their FICO score is just too low, right? If it's too low, I can't even do something as simple as validation of my income or validation of credit because my risk profile to a lender is just too large to have a, ro- a loan underwritten. So are you saying that your proprietary Ricky score, uh, you know, fills a gap in the market of an underserved population to have a risk profile that a lender can underwrite against? Huge. Huge. Fills gap and provides opportunity. I mean, it's, it's, and, and the question you ask is a question we get from a lot of people. It's not a competitor. It's really, it's different. It's, it's opening up opportunity for that 45 million number that Brent mentioned earlier that never had an opportunity. They were invisible to underwriters. So, and then what you see today you see what's called the lead generation business, where it's it's people putting in their information that's not validated up front, but it, then it's sold to another entity without you knowing, right? If you go on one of these data aggregators when you're looking for a loan, you're going to get pinged with 30 texts and 150 calls, and you know you just get bombarded. We're we're not in that business. We're in the business of qualified borrowers, the consumer saying, "I'm out here. I'm qualified." 
what's your what's your auto program look like for me? What does your housing program look for, look like for me? Let's see what we look like, and that's the exchange or marketplace that we have with our with our lenders over the years that we've built relationships with on that traditional model and moving that more into a modernization of the consumer controlling who they want to work with and how. And another thing I'd like to add is um, when you're looking at this tokenization piece, we focus on one piece, just the consumer, just the human. I think a lot of this gets mixed up in the media and it gets mixed up in news and even gets mixed up in some conference sessions I've been at. When you have groups talking about 10, 20, 30 different things, most of the audience gets confused. We're the consumer financial identity, self-sovereign financial identity. And let, I want Brent to talk about that. He's got a great story of I am, and, and this will make a lot of sense for you when you hear it. But the days of uh, of, of lenders making decisions on, on what they can offer based off of data that's 45 to 50% incorrect from long forms that are filled out by a consumer, we eliminate that. So put another hat on, put your lending hat on. If you were a lender and you saw coming in that it came from my, my PNC bank account, my South Carolina Federal Credit Union, you saw all that information, and then there were analytics on top and some intelligence that said, my discretionary is this, my, my Ricky index is a 120 or it's a 130, and 100 is, is, is par. Anything sufficient or, or below that is deficient in cash flow. Anything above is, is a surplus. But if you're making that underwriting decision, especially on today's age, you have to have the best consumer experience out there because if you don't, someone else is going to come out and make it even better for that consumer. And we're helping lenders by having that. And then that cycle time of the 42 days and that manufacturing cost of $12,000, that 42 days is also underneath. If you dig into that, it's called touches. And the touches of a file can be 25 to 26, 27 times uh, an underwriter, processor, closer, shipper touches that file. A lot of those touches, and I was an underwriter, so I, I know how it goes. It can be a frustrating event. If I knew that I had the direct source from Brent's account, and I knew that was his bank account from his, his bank in Athens, and I don't need to ask for that missing 10th month statement or that missing rent check or all those items were gleaned from, from that asset statement from Ricky. So when you're looking at artificial intelligence, this isn't machine learning. This is, natu this is linguistics, natural language processing determining what is going on with that consumer through the account statements, really knowing who I am as a consumer, as opposed to me taking out debt to get more debt, which is what we've historically done. Great. So I think I'm getting a little bit better picture here that there's, there's a, there's a much better sale to the consumer that, Hey, there is a much better way to share your data with a lender. The, the consumer is incented to do this because they're likely to get a better rate potentially by sharing more of their data and this bigger, better picture. And Eric, you used a couple industry terms here, but can you kind of break that down and then how you think about sharing that information with the lender and, and what that revenue model looks like? Yeah. So when we say QB, it stands for qualified borrower and a qualified borrower is take the traditional lead or the model of, of, of a lender working with a lead generation company and buying that lead. Um, there's a lot of questions that come around that as a lender when you buy that. So we're cutting to it and saying, as the consumer, the consumer is providing verified, validated data 
which we all know in order to put intelligence and analytics on there, your, your, your results are only as good as your data. We're providing data that is real, direct from the source. The source is the banking asset statements. The traditional model is having people fill out information, and, and a lot of that's incorrect. So QB is a qualified borrower, is a generated token or a lead for a lender to purchase and buy so they have an underwritable file that almost three quarters of what they need to underwrite is already done in that QB lead. Interesting. So now, now as a lender, I don't have to basically rely on a consumer or a home buyer to upload their information into my loan application platform or a website. Um, and then I have to go and have originators and underwriters go validate that information. Um, I basically have to make a, a request to your token to validate that as part of the loan application process. And that, in theory... That cuts down, you know, half of the human touch points during an application process, right? You know, of that 42-day average, you know, half 50% of that is just validating data. So are you re you're resolving that big inefficiency? Am I understanding that correctly? That's correct. So the the adage time is money is is no more evident than the passport token. Because if I'm on the lender's side, how many processors and underwriters and closers, which are people, are touching those files? Those are what's called touches. Those touches cost money. That That is being reduced, um, which goes in the overall cost to manufacture or originate and close a loan. Uh, Form-free reduces that greatly while providing the consumer experience of controlling and sharing their data. So this is an underwritable, qualified borrower. The lender still has to approve it. They still have to underwrite and approve it, but this becomes underwritable for them. And there's nothing like it in the industry today to have something like this as a qualified borrower before the process starts, goes through the entire process with validated, verified data and analytics on top to have the underwriter make an informed decision. Wow. So form, form freeze true value prop in, from a B2B perspective and a B2C perspective. From a B2B perspective is the ability to originate a, a loan quicker than it is today, right? Because you remove a significant human capital choke point. In validation Correct. of data. And then from a B2C perspective, it is a centralized location to have all of my financial data stored once and uploaded once. Right? Am I understanding that? Yeah, as long as they stay opted into Passport, Passport is there, is in control of me as the consumer. It's it's the vehicle to to get any loan that you want from any creditor. So from an SSFI perspective, self-sovereign financial identity perspective, it is the true initial substantiation of the start of my digital financial footprint. Exactly. You know, the, <clears throat> the self-sovereign financial identity is something we created, um, building on self-sovereign identity. Um, if we think about self-sovereign identity and the delta between financial identity, um, the financial data tells a rich story about who you are. Um, by granularly looking at your transaction detail, we can determine based on the data that we're collecting, corroborating it with other sources that you are Brent Chandler or you are the person you are saying you are. Mm -hmm. Memorializing that in your own identity is essentially how we constitute a self-sovereign financial identity. 
it really encapsulates your financial DNA that you own. This is again coming back to the Web3. It, it, it really constitutes the known information about you that is yours, that owns your identity, and that is verifiable. Okay. Um, what, what goes into the SSFI? Your financial DNA. What is financial DNA? It's not a medical term. This is a term that is, again, looking at your asset information, your income information, your employment information, your credit information, public records to the degree that they exist. And this opens up this, this new form of identity that everyone in the world can accept. And it doesn't depend necessarily on a government document. It doesn't depend on traditional methods of verification. Uh, while it can be enhanced with that information, uh, again, in an open network, we would suggest that this is one form of identity that you could leverage for all things in, in, the, in, the, you know, in the realm of, of identity verification. Um, as it relates to payment solutions and DeFi, et cetera, the self-sovereign financial identity really becomes a know-your-everything about that person, um, verifiable. Now, we call it the IM token. And this is very unique to a soul-bound, zero-proof token of identity. Um, we call it the IM simply because the first words humans uttered when they realized they had consciousness were IM. It stands very tall on the shoulders of, of history in terms of representing who you are. Your self-sovereign financial identity is yours. And upon sharing that qualified borrower token with a lender, creating a smart contract, you would then share your PII information. And herein lies self-sovereign financial identity. So it completes the loop. So while your attributes go out in a QB that are that are non-descriptive towards your PII, your personally identifiable information, which removes bias. Bias is a huge thing. I mean, people, people really need to understand how much bias still exists in lending. Um, you know, removing that bias opens up that opportunity that you just spoke to, Siva, with respect to the underserved, the not served, the uh, thin file, invisible people. And this is 100 million people in the United States. It's 300 million in China. And this, this, this cascades around the world. So by removing that dependency, creating visibility for those that are invisible, you now open up a caveat to the world of virtual credit. And again, a mortgage is one form of borrowing. Um, it's not the only one, but when we look at this country and we look at a wealth gap that exists today that is greater than it was in 1968, um, and, and that date is, is meaningful, um, discrimination was legal up until that time. We have a larger wealth gap today between black households and white households. 
That is an atrocity. And that is what we aim to solve. Close that gap. Serve the not served. Remove the bias. Man, I I, I love that. And I mean, you, you guys are achieving a capability that a lot a lot of Web three you know evangelists and maxists are claiming the power of blockchain can solve. Right, the singular di- mm-hmm. uh, substantiation of a digital footprint, digital ID. So in theory, your passport token. Ricky score, all these capabilities of the form-free product could be plugged into almost any sort of institutional platform, exchanges, bank accounts, what have you. And eventually, you could be the concatenator or the single orchestrator of financial information to then go and validate that via one singular token. You got it, man. You nailed it. And from an asset standpoint, too, if we're talking CFI and DeFi, um, in short order, a passport will have a view into a consumer's digital currency wallet, the crypto wallet, any you know exchange that they have. Not through a calculation of discretionary income because it's not used in everyday spending and, and transactions, but for an underwriter to make a more informed decision to say, hmm, there's a couple hundred thousand in, in Bitcoin or or whatever it is sitting in there. This, this is a person that's invested in, in that space, but they also have a cash flow of $10,000 a month. Here's what we can offer for an auto loan. So it's it's inclusion of people and it's inclusion of currencies and it's an inclusion of um, availability for more people and more businesses to come together where traditionally there's been some sort of a, of a garden or, or that, that wall that, that keeps people apart from doing business with one another. We're removing that. Removing bias and removing walls. If I'm a user... How, how can I start playing around with the form free app? Can I go sign up on something? If I'm a lender or if I'm a financial institution and I really like the capabilities you're bringing, how, how do I test this? How do I start a conversation with you guys? Yeah, a couple different ways. And and just to finish the thought that Eric just laid out, DeFi goes the other way as well. There's a lot of DeFi lenders right now that would love to to offer up uh, loans to you know crypto holders, currency holders. Um, who would also love to see that you have the residual income carry forward on the fiat side. So again, it yeah. kind of we're, we're bridging that gap and, and we know there's a huge opportunity there. Um, to answer your question, the, um, the app is, is in the app store, um, both Droid and, and Apple. And uh, it, it is being enhanced as we speak, but there's essentially a kind of a wait list, if you will, uh, where you can sign up today. Um, we do see uh, you know, a full commercial application in the next few weeks um, to which those QBs can be generated. And, and essentially, think of it as a PEZ dispenser. You know, if you need a loan, how much do you need? What type of loan? That constitutes a QB. And then you can share it with a plethora of lenders. The lender community, believe it or not, already uses it. <laughs> That's the beauty of the last 15 years. I mean... The decade of serving up the account checks, um, we built the rails that this token lives on. Um, mm-hmm. They already use it. So when they receive, that's I think that's a really key key point to take home for the listeners. This is already in use today. It's just being used in a different environment. It's just being used, right? You know, at at in the underbelly of the beast, if you will, in the in the underwriting um, chasm of antiquity. Um, so you're, you're, you're literally providing access to the same information. And so the beauty is the lenders are very familiar with, with 
with our story. Um, and when they receive this QB, it already marries up right into the underwriting platform. Um, and, and so lenders have already subscribed at a massive level to purchase said QBs. And so the, the race is really to identify those borrowers and reach those borrowers um, who are ready to, to borrow. And, and we don't think that interest rates are really the, the reason that a lot of borrowers aren't coming into the market. Imagine if you're a first-time home buyer, You've, you haven't been exposed to a 3% interest rate. Uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the thing that's preventing you from getting into it. Um, what's preventing you is that 64% of black Americans have a 620 or lower. And a 620 oftentimes doesn't make it through the front door for a lender. Doesn't equate to a loan. Can't build wealth. So, so we're breaking that. Amazing, amazing. So think I about mean, it. Security... Security, transparency, consumer control, consumer engagement's better. More consumers have the opportunity to build wealth. The underwriter likes it because they're reducing costs. They're reducing fraud. Understanding We're risk. We're bridging CFI with DeFi. Exactly. Understanding risk off of direct source data so you have accurate, much more accurate risk assessment than you've ever seen. We've done it for years. Um, DeFi's been doing what they've been doing. Traditional or TradFi or CFI's been doing what they're doing. We bridge it together because who walks over the bridge? The consumer. There's no consumer. There's no B2B business. The consumer's in the middle of all of that. And the consumer should look for your app in the App Store, right? That's right. It's called Passport. Okay. We've got all some right. incredible enhancements coming out. But, uh, Great. Awesome. And, and, yeah. and for awesome. other you know business leaders, uh, your website? Formfree.com. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And and we'll drop a link to that in the in the description of this podcast and guys this was an awesome session and you know anytime I can uh, flex my my data muscles I I always love these discussions and try to distill that information to a layman's yeah. uh, you know understanding is really great and I hopefully our listeners got some transparency on how data is a huge hurdle within the mortgage industry one of the primary hurdles so this has been a fun awesome uh you know episode to record and a great example of you know a testament to your success as a web2 company you know over four trillion dollars already processed um and now how you've uh, successfully evolved into a web3 company and leveraging brett i think you made a a, a reference to uh, zk so zero knowledge proofs it might be in uh, an implemented technology within your token and you know you've taken a token a data payload just awesome awesome fun session guys thank you I want to thank you guys for being on here and, and thank you uh, to my co-host jessica and uh, thank you to our listeners uh, whatever time you're listening to this we uh, want to thank you for listening and and uh, have a great day have a great night thank, thank you, you guys thank you so much Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show and your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com.
YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.